Thank you for listening to the podcast of Palmetto Baptist Church. We pray that as you listen to the following message, that it will encourage you to continue to connect, grow, and serve in your relationship with God and with others. All right. I know that the time changed this morning. In preparation for that, I had a full Diet Coke and a pot of coffee. I'm ready to roll. Ready to roll. I don't know of a better way to start a service than the way we started today, baptizing Jessica and David. (sighs) Cranked up. Amen? If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. You see these beautiful flowers on either side of the stage? Those are put there by Miss Judy White. Miss Judy attends the traditional service. Her husband, Bill, passed away a year ago yesterday. And she asked if it'd be all right if she placed those flowers there in memory of him. And we, of course, said absolutely and totally, yes, you can do that. If you know her and see her, give her a big hug. She is a precious, precious, precious lady who uh, is so quietly faithful to attend our church. I appreciate her so much. Uh, So glad to see you. We're in the middle of fire under the tower. (laughs) I want you to get this. I want you to listen to this very, very carefully. Real revival. Real revival is the special and visible and powerful moving of God. You see it. It's visible. Among a specific group of people, like you and me, in a particular place, like right here, over an indefinite period of time, we don't know how long it'll last. We want it to last longer rather than shorter. Changing the lives of those people. Real revival is the special, visible, and powerful moving of God in a certain group of people, in a particular place, for an indefinite period of time, changing the lives of those people. And that is the revival for which we're praying. We're in a season of revival called Fire Under the Tower. I know it may sound a little cheesy, but on our property there is a water tower. It's been there a long, long time. And our goal during this season of revival is, for, is to allow God to become available to God to ignite a fire under this tower. Not a literal fire that burns down a building, but a spiritual fire that literally consumes You and me, God's people. That's what we're praying for. We began this season on February the 22nd. It was a Wednesday. It was Ash Wednesday. We began it with an all-day prayer meeting, a continuous day of prayer from 7 o'clock in the morning until after 8 o'clock that night on February the 22nd. People came here quietly. They went into a room, a prayer room, and they prayed throughout the day. 
We've continued it by printing a book, a devotional book, the Fire Under the Tower devotional book that I hope you have one. Uh, I hope you're reading it. It has daily devotions written by our people, and it, it's a, a supplement designed to help continue the fire. If you don't have a copy, there are copies in a basket out there in the foyer. We have given out about 150 to 75 copies already and emailed 280 copies. So a lot of them are out. Great devotions. This past week, we had a kickoff revival series. Reuben Smith from, from uh, L.J. Georgia came down. He preached last Sunday morning, Sunday night, Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night. Oh, boy, he was awesome. God brought the messages that we needed through him. And we had great singing and musicians. And you showed up in record numbers. Our attendance for every single service was about 30% higher than I expected. I, I was a person of little faith. But you showed up and you showed out And I thank you so much for doing so. God started something at that meeting. He ignited a fire that is burning right now. Now, here is the question. Is it enough? Anybody who was here this week knows that we experienced God doing something in these series of meetings that he had not been doing Up to that point, it it was, I'll tell you, I've been in ministry for, uh, I've been a minister for 31 years. I've been a pastor for about 29 of those years. And I have never been in a Sunday through Wednesday series of meetings that was as powerful as the ones that we just finished. God is doing something. He has ignited a fire. The question is, is it enough? We have seen the flame. We have God has allowed us to be close enough to feel the heat of it. In some cases, we've been engulfed by it. But here's the question. Is it enough to see it? Is it enough to be engulfed by it? Is it enough to feel the heat of it? We're going to go to a passage of Scripture here this morning that I think will tell us that the answer to the question, is that enough, is going to be no, not yet. You see, it's not enough to be engulfed by the flames. It's not enough to feel the heat of the flames. It's not even enough to hear God's voice out from the flames. God doesn't want you just to experience seeing the flames. He wants you to be consumed by the flames. The flames have ignited. What's it going to take for you to be consumed by them. Exodus chapter 3, beginning with verse 1, describes the call of the great man of God in the Old Testament, Moses. Now, Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father in law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness, the desert, and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire. From within a bush. And Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. 
So Moses thought, I'll go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to Moses from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. I'm concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me. I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them, so now go I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. The last I checked earlier this week, the population of China is 1.3 billion people. 1.3 billion people. Now, by contrast, there are about 300 million people in the United States, but 1.3 billion, over four times as many people in China as there are in the United States. It would have been more had they not enacted something in 1979 to try to put some controls on their population growth. In 1979, China enacted and started enforcing what they called a one-child policy. That policy basically says that from 1979 until an indefinite period of time, so far it's lasted um, three decades, that any household, any married couple will be restricted to having only one child. There were some exceptions. If the mother and father were only children themselves, if they were the only children in their own families, then they were allowed to have two instead of one. If, in some cases, in some areas of China, if the child, the one child you were allowed was a girl, they would allow you a second child to see if you could have a boy. But if that second child was a girl or a boy, no matter Which one it was, that was all you could have. And that was only in certain areas of China. Because in other areas of China, you only were allowed one child, whether it was girl or boy. Some couples in the areas where you could only have one child no matter what, who were told because of an ultrasound that they were having girls but they wanted a boy to carry on the family name, would have the unborn girl aborted and would continue doing that until they conceived a male child. In 
a couple who already had one child and then got pregnant with another illegally could be jailed until they offered their second child up for adoption because they were only allowing one child per family. I thought about uh, my own family, and in particular, uh, my wife, Amanda, her family. Her grandmother, her great-grandmother, was a lady by the name of Mama Cloud. She's deceased now, but when we started dating, when I came on the scene in her family, Mama Cloud was a fixture of their family. She was the matriarch of the family. She was like legend in the family. And so was her husband, although he was dead by the time I came along. His name was Daddy D. Cloud. Daddy D and Mama Cloud. And they had 14 children. 14 children. They were biblical people. Be fruitful and multiply. And I thought about how it would have impacted them had China's one-child policy been enforced, enacted and enforced here in the United States. They would have only one child, the first child, and they would have had no more, including they would not have had my wife's grandmother, grandfather. Which means also they would, have not, would not have had my wife's mother because they wouldn't have had her father. Which means also they wouldn't have had Amanda. And so that one child policy would have changed everything about not only their lives but mine. And it would have also meant that the two children that Amanda and I have, Zach and Hillary, would not because they could not be here. China has revisited that policy and they have decided that because it has saved them in population growth, about 400 million people, they estimate, that they're going to continue it for an indefinite period of time in order to further control their population growth. A similar thing to this, not identical, but a similar thing to this happened in Egypt during the time that Moses was born. If you know anything about early Israelite history, you know that the Israelites went down into Egypt because there was a famine in their land. And when they got to Egypt, things were so good for them that they they decided to stay there, which I think was a mistake. But they decided to stay there. And it ended up they stayed there 430 years. When they had been there somewhere around 300 years, the Egyptians started counting them. One, two, three, four, five. And they started talking behind closed doors. You know, these Israelites, there are a lot of them. In fact, if they keep growing at the pace they're growing in population, there is a certain year out there when their their numbers will exceed our numbers. And while we might be on friendly relations right now, once they outnumber us, they might not be on friendly relations. And if they outnumber us, they could overpower us, rise up and overpower us. So we need to do something about it. And so their first plan was to enslave the Israelites. I mean, think about it. It wasn't 
a, a bad plan if you're wanting to control their population because, because you take all the people, men and women, and you put them into hard labor slavery from early in the morning until dark 30 every day. And then after dark 30, after all daylight hours been working hard in the, in the baking sun of the Middle East, they, they, they allow them to go back home to their huts. And here are two things you can say about the Israelites during that time. Number one, they were working so many hours, they didn't have time to make children. And when they did get, because they were working all the time, when they did get home, they were too tired to make children. Here's the problem. The plan that should have worked on paper did work, in reality, did not work. The more the Egyptians oppressed them, Exodus chapter 1 tells us, the greater their population. You just can't stop these Israelites. And so their population increased, and so Egypt had to backtrack and come up with a new policy. And the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, decided on this policy. He says, you know, if we kill all of the newborn male children, of the Israelites. At some point, there won't be any male children, adults, who can contribute to the child conceiving and child birthing of the Israelites. And so they adopted a policy that said, if any Israelite's mother, any, any Israelite woman gives birth to a child, if that child is a son, is a boy, they are to kill that boy immediately upon birth. And here's the way they would do it. He said, uh, he said as, as soon as you have a child born, if that child is a boy, you toss him into the Nile River, presumably to drown. And so that's what they did. Well, Moses was born during this time when this policy was being enforced. But Moses' mother had a different idea. She decided, I'm not going to let them kill my son. And so she hid him for three months. She hid him. Hiding a baby for three months, especially when, when the Egyptians, you know they were making spot checks of all the Israelite houses. Well, we're going to uh, make a surprise visit to uh, huts number three, four, five, and 72 this morning. We'll do five others after lunchtime, but we want to make sure that the Israelites are following our policy. And Moses' mother, after Moses was born, was able to hide him for three months, but it got to the point where she could no longer hide him. Evidently, he had a, a fairly rambunctious personality with which he was born. And he didn't want to keep quiet. And so Moses' mother, realizing she couldn't hide him anymore, she, she built a little basket. A basket raft is what it was. And she sealed it on the inside and on the outside with tar, with pitch, so that when she put the basket out in the Nile River, the basket would float. And then she put the three-month-old baby Moses into the basket and she gently nudged that basket raft with Moses in it out from the marshes of the Nile River and into the Nile. It's interesting, I think, and, and I just saw this. I, to some extent, she actually followed the policy of the Egyptians. She put the baby in the Nile River. Kind of. 
I mean, Pharaoh's policy didn't say that she, they, couldn't be put, they couldn't put the baby out there in a raft. I mean, you know, so Moses' mother was a very creative, ingenuitive woman. She puts the baby in the raft and pushes him out, and then she, she hides out from a distance to see what becomes of him. Well, she happens to push him out at a point in the Nile River where Pharaoh's daughter is bathing with some of her servants, some of her maidservants. And Pharaoh's daughter hears a baby crying. And she calls one of her servants. She said, I hear a baby crying. I need for you to go look for it. And they went out into the marshes and they found this basket raft with Moses in it. And they brought this baby in this raft to Pharaoh's daughter. And she looked at it and Moses, as a baby, melted her heart. And she asked her father for permission to adopt this Israelite boy. Well, you're going to need somebody to nurse this boy. Well, go get one of the Israelite women. And, of course, the Israelite woman that they retrieved to nurse Moses was Moses' mother. And so here, for the first 40 years of Moses' life, he is raised in the royalty and the palace of none other than Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, nursed in those early years by his own mother, Somewhere along the way, he got to looking at himself. I don't look like these Egyptians. I'm not exactly the same color that they are. I, my, my hair doesn't, doesn't comb exactly like theirs does. There's something different about me. It would be, I would imagine, kind of like if you were an African-American child and one day when you came home from third grade at the age of eight, you walked in and, and for the first time it just dawned on you because you'd been adopted by white parents. I don't look like mom. And so Moses realized he didn't look like the Egyptians And somebody, somewhere, perhaps his mother, I don't know who it was, informed him of his true story, that he was an Israelite, not an Egyptian, but who had been adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. And so one day, Moses was out in the country, and he saw an Egyptian man mistreat some Israelite men who were his slaves. And so later that day, Moses looked to his left and he looked to his right. And when he didn't see anybody there, he went up to that Egyptian man who had mistreated some of Moses' own countrymen and he killed him. And Moses thought nobody had seen it. He killed him and he did away with his body. Sometime later, Moses came up on two Israelite men, two of his own countrymen, and they were fighting against each other to the death. And he says, what are you doing? The last thing in the world we need to be doing is fighting amongst ourselves. Stop this ridiculous craziness. And one of the Israelite men says, what are you going to do about it, Moses? Are you going to kill one of us like you did that Egyptian? And the Bible says that Moses immediately knew that his secret or what he thought was a secret was certainly no longer a secret. And the news got a hold of it and Pharaoh got a hold of it. And Pharaoh sought to kill Moses, his adopted grandson, as a result of Moses killing the Egyptian. And so the Bible says that Moses fled Egypt and he went down into the Arabian desert about 400 miles to the west 
And he stayed there for the next 40 years of his life. He met a, a fellow by the name of Jethro, also known as Ruel. He met Jethro's daughter. Her name was Zipporah. And Jethro gave Moses permission to marry Zipporah. And they married. And Moses stayed with his father-in-law. And he worked for his father-in-law tending sheep. Here's a man who was raised for 40 years in the palace of Pharaoh in Egyptian royalty, who was trained in leadership, trained in military strategy, who was trained trained to be a man of greatness, and he is tending sheep. And he's just living a nothing life. I mean, he's in a place that he's not used to. He's, he's doing a job that he wasn't trained for. He's uh, among a people that he doesn't know. Not only are they not Egyptians, but they aren't Israelites. And so he is in this place And he's just living a status quo life, just a routine life, staying low because he's a fugitive from Egypt. And when he gets to be about 80 years old, after 40 years, four decades of just this nobody knows about me, nobody cares about me, know nothing, basically do nothing, status quo, routine life, He goes up on the side of a mountain on the far side of the desert with his father's flock of sheep. And he comes up on a bush that is on fire. But it's not just a bush that's on fire. It's a bush that's on fire, but not being consumed. Now... On the side of that mountain in the middle of nowhere with nobody else around, it would be strange enough to walk up on a bush that's burning and being consumed, that's burning and burning up. That would be strange enough because that would, that would immediately produce, it would evoke some questions in Moses' mind. Why is this bush on fire? Who set this bush on fire? Is there somebody around here that I'm not seeing that I need to be aware of? Or did lightning strike this bush? How did it get on fire? The sheep didn't light the fire. That would be strange enough. But to compound the strangeness, not only was the bush on fire, but it was not being consumed. It was on fire, but it was not burning up. And so the Bible says that in response to this strange sight, Moses turns, putting his focus toward this bush, this strange bush. And the Bible says that the moment... That God noticed that Moses turned toward the bush, that God spoke from within the bush. And he said two words, Moses, Moses. The fact that he says his name twice indicates that God was emphatic on getting Moses' attention. Some of you, God has been uh, doing some really remarkable things to get your attention some of you, he has your attention. I mean, he has your, your rapt attention. Others of you, you're still kind of distracted. It's kind of like a spiritual ADHD. You know, he's been trying to get your attention and you've kind of been like uh, doing your own thing, not paying a whole lot of attention, totally absorbed in your own life. Moses, Moses, and Moses says, here I am. And then God says, don't come any closer, take off. Your sandals, take your shoes off and take them off because the ground on which you are standing is holy ground. It would be a landmark place in your life. 
Some of you, and more of, more of us here than realize, this year is going to be a landmark year for you. It's going to be the year when you either rise or fall. It's going to be the year when our church either turns around or it turns down. And whether of those, which of those two things is true will depend totally on your and my response to what God is doing and what God is saying. God speaks to him out from within the burning bush. Now, I want you to notice something. This bush is burning, but it's not being consumed. I got an email from Billy Joyner the other day. Billy's not going to be here today because her granddaughter... Her grandson, her granddaughter and her great-grandson are being baptized at the church where they're attending. And she will be there today watching their baptism. A a baptism for which she has prayed for decades. (laughs) But she emailed me. She emails me about three times a day on average. Always good stuff. Sometimes not so good stuff. I told her that. And she emailed me a joke. You'd heard it. A fellow out in California picked up a payphone, called heaven. The operator on the other end of the line said, please put $10,000 into the payphone because that's what it will cost for you to get to heaven. And he did. And the person watching this phone conversation was amazed by it. And then this person left from there and came to Oklahoma and there were people on a payphone calling heaven and it cost $5,000 and they were amazed by that. They get down to Georgia and somebody's on a payphone. You remember a payphone, don't you? And the call's 35 cents and the person says, why is it that the call God in California is 10,000 and Oklahoma it's 5,000 or whatever and in Georgia it's 35 cents? And the guy says, it's a local call here. But in with that joke, she said, she asked me a little addendum question. She said, do you know why so many people go barefoot in Georgia? See, I didn't know that because I don't go barefoot. My wife will tell you, I wear shoes all the time, except when I'm sleeping or bathing. And I would wear them there if I could. (laughs) Jessica was wearing rubber clogs. Is that what they call them? Crocs. Rubber Crocs. I come from a payphone world. Crocs is a brand new term for me. She's wearing rubber Crocs. I could probably wear those in the shower. Maybe in the bed. Billy says, do you know why, do you know why people go barefoot in Georgia? I, and you scroll down on her email. It says, because everybody knows who's from Georgia that the ground on which we walk is holy ground. Billy Joyner. The bush was burning, not consumed. Did you see the title of this sermon? Is anybody aware of the title of this message? Burning, but also consumed. You know, I went online after I put this message together, and uh, I went online to try to find sermons and Bible lessons entitled, from this text, entitled, Burning, but also consumed. And I couldn't find any. There may be some, but I couldn't find any. I looked at dozens of websites. I did find sermons entitled Burning But Not Consumed. The bush 
that was not consumed. Burning, but not consumed. But I never saw one that said burning, but also consumed. Do you know what it means to be consumed by fire? There's a difference between burning versus being consumed by the burning. If you are consumed by fire, what fire does, it changes whatever it burns from one from one particle of matter to another. From one status to another. If you, uh, if you heat up water to a certain uh, temperature and you leave it there for a while, that water, because of the heat, it won't destroy it. The water doesn't go away necessarily to the point of being destroyed. What happens is it changes from one form to another. It goes from what? From liquid to vapor. I, uh, for the children's sermon in the next service, because we're not going to have baptism there, I brought these ashes. What do you suppose these ashes were before they were ashes? A block of wood? A watered up piece of paper, maybe? Cardboard? A toothpick? Three toothpicks? You see, when you heat up something to a certain point, it changes from one form to another. It doesn't, it's not destroyed. Matter is neither created nor destroyed once God has created it to begin with. What happens is, in a fire, a substance is changed from within, from one form to another form. This bush was burning, but it stayed a bush. It wasn't being consumed. It didn't change from one form to another. Why is that? Why did God not consume the bush? Why is it so significant that the bush was burning but not consumed? Somebody said, well, because that really makes it a miracle. Hey, it was a miracle the thing was on fire up there anyway with nobody around. So why have to, why go the extra mile of making it burning but not consumed? And here, let, let me suggest this answer to you. God never intended for this bush to be consumed. He intended it for, to, for it to be burning, for it to be engulfed in flames, for it to be surrounded by flames, for it to be giving off heat, but not to be consumed. Now, but don't misinterpret me to say that God didn't want something consumed there. He did. But it wasn't the bush. God didn't want the bush consumed. He wanted Moses consumed. It was Moses that he wanted to, to get engulfed by the flames to the point where he was consumed, not literally burned up so that his body was ashes, but God wanted in the fire of his presence to spiritually consume Moses so that he became something totally different. He, became, he went from one form to another, from one person to a totally different person because he was consumed by the flames of God's presence. If you have been in everything we've been doing since uh, February the 22nd, I, I, I think that it's safe for me to say that if I could go through everything we've experienced thus far, just thus far in this fire under the tower season, 
to, to go through everything we have since February the 22nd, if I can say that I'm not feeling or seeing anything, my wood is soaking wet. Most of us who have been here, I think most of us who have experienced what we've experienced so far, we see the flames of God's presence. We can hear the voice of God coming out of the fire. We are close enough to feel the heat of it. We see its impact blistering the hearts of other people who've gotten close to it. But we're a lot like Moses up to this point. Up to this point, we're a lot like Moses. We've seen the flames. We've felt the heat. We've saw its impact on other people. But God wants more than that. God is not satisfied with us seeing the flames, feeling the heat of the flames, being surrounded by the flames, being engulfed by the flames. God is not satisfied with that. And he won't be satisfied during the season of revival until you and I are consumed by his presence. If you read the rest of that chapter, which we're not going to do, you see a Moses who is a scaredy cat. You see a Moses who offers one excuse after the other. He could have written a book on excuses right then and there on the side of that mountain. Well, God says, I want, I want, I want to consume you and I want to send you to Egypt to free my people. Moses says, I, I, they're not going to believe me. I, I'm, I'm a nobody. I'm nothing. I, I don't even know what your name is. You think for 40 years in the desert, not having anybody to talk to but sheep and maybe his wife and father-in-law every now and then that God, that Moses would have struck up a conversation with God that'd be long enough that he'd find out his name. But it didn't happen over 40 years of being out there in the desert. I don't know who you are. I can't speak very well. I don't want to go. I like my life just like it is. Boy, if that's not a Baptist answer, I don't know what else is. I like my life just like it is. I just assume God not mess with my life as it is. I don't want to be consumed. God says, I want you to be consumed. Now, here's an interesting thing. Here's an interesting question. One that the Bible doesn't entirely specifically answer. And that is, we know that Moses became consumed by God's presence. But when, when did it happen? Right there in the presence of that flame, he was in the presence of it, but he was not consumed by it. He was just a scaredy cat. We feel it. We, we hear it in his voice. But somewhere between the experience with that bush on the mountain and the day that he stood before Pharaoh, this man was a changed man. Because when he stands before Pharaoh, he doesn't come up and say, you know, I, I really didn't want to be here, but God made me come. I didn't want to come. I don't think these people are going to believe me, and I don't know God's name, but I thought I'd just come anyway. That's not what we see. We see a Moses who stands upright. He is confident. He is bold, and he stands up, and he says, Pharaoh, I've been sent here by God, and God says, you need to let my people go. The man is unrecognizable in contrast to the man we met on the mountain. He's unrecognizable. Somewhere between the mountain and Pharaoh, he became consumed with God. What God wants for you is more than just being in the presence of the fire, more than just being engulfed in the flame, more than being surrounded by the ignition. God wants you to be consumed by his presence. To the point that you are changed. 
And he can work through you. God couldn't work through that fearful little scaredy cat. He had to consume him. My question for you as we end this message is this. Are you available for consumption? Are you available for God to consume you? We're going to have an invitation right here. We're going to have an invitation. And there are two two invitations I want to make. Number one, if you're here and you have never received Christ as your personal Savior, the invitation for you is to come and invite Jesus into your life to save you. This happened to Jessica. This happened to David. It's happened to people all over this place today. At some point in their lives, they gave their lives to Christ. It can happen to you this morning if you've never been saved. This is for you. But for those of us who are here and we we have been saved, we have invited Christ into our lives. Here's the question. Are you willing to make yourself available for God to consume you? If you are and you're able to walk, you don't have to come to me. I want you to just come. I just want you to touch this altar right here. Only if you're willing to be available. Come and touch this altar and then return to your seat. And by touching that altar, you're saying, God, I don't know exactly what this means, but I want to be totally available to you to consume me. Our Heavenly Father, in this place, there are those who do not know you as their personal Savior. And Lord, we have invited them to come to this altar of prayer and just say, Lord, come into my life. Save me. Be my Savior. Be my Lord. Lord, for the rest of us, Lord, the invitation that we've we've offered is an invitation to come and to be consumed to be available to you in your presence. Lord, you have ignited a fire and we can see it, we can feel it. We've seen its impact on other people and how they're relating to it. But Lord, like Moses on the mountain, we see it, but we're not being consumed. But God, I pray that you would do in us what you did in Moses somewhere between that mountaintop experience and his confrontation with Pharaoh. You consumed him. Lord, may that be us. In Jesus' name, amen.